the Anesthesia Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome. Uh, we are live on Twitter for this very special live broadcast. I'm delighted to be hosting this panel uh, of authors on this very latest paper published today. Uh, they are members of the NAP7 steering panel and authors on this very special paper, which is Patient Characteristics, Anaesthetic Workload and Techniques in the UK, an Analysis from the 7th National Audit Project Activity Survey. And I welcome people all around the world listening to us now. So I'd just like to take a moment to introduce our panel. Uh, so the first person we've got is Andrew Kane. Hi, Andrew, can you just explain your role on, on the project? And perhaps there's some exciting news that you've had today you'd like to share with us. <laughs> Hi, Tanya. Nice to meet you. And uh, good morning to Australia. Um, so I'm uh, Andrew Kane. I'm one of the fellows working for the Royal College of Anesthetists on the NAP7 project and um, my main role has been to organise the activity survey which we'll talk about in, in detail in the next half an hour and um, yeah on the news I've been offered Can a consultant news? job today <laughs> so it's been a busy day so wonderful and I was hearing when you started on this project your career was a little different and your family was a little different as well yeah because it's, it's taken so long <laughs> taken, well because of COVID we'll come to that in a minute but I mean we've been going for three and a half nearly four years and we've had several babies between the team and life <laughs> events so it's been quite a uh, you know not not within the team but the extent <laughs> Congra congratulations to all. <laughs> That's really wonderful news. Uh, and then we've got Jasmeet Sower. Would you be able to introduce yourself, please, and let us know your role on the project? Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. My name's uh, Jazz Sower. I'm an anaesthetist in Bristol, and I'm the clinical lead for the NAP7 project. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and then we've got Tim Cook. If you can let us know what your role has been on this project. Thank you. Yeah, so I've my sort of official post is the director of NAPS. So I'm sort of the um, director of football to um, Jazz's um, football manager. And um, I work, uh, I'm a consultant anaesthetist intensivist in Bath and hello to New Zealand, of course, Tanya. Um, yes, thank you very else, much. Anywhere else anyone is listening. And, and just really think, actually, we have had one baby within the team, um, within, within <laughs> the team as well as several across the team. So you would say to trainees wanting to get involved in research, it's a good way to expand your family and your love life, is that right? Well, what, what, I would, what I would genuinely say, so this is the first time I've been involved in the NAPS for 15 years, roughly, and it's the first time we've had fellows, and they've been an absolutely amazing asset. And um, Andrew and his two colleagues, uh, Amira and Rich, have done a brilliant job and, and will continue to do a brilliant job for the rest of the year. Wonderful. All right, let's get into it. So, Tim, I just wondered, given your history with the project, if you could let our listeners know, what is what is a national audit project? What's the history of yeah. it? Just for people who might not have come across it before. Yeah, I'll be reasonably brief. So, um, the national audit projects is, this is an app seven. So, this is the seventh in a series of what are called national audit projects, rather com complexly. It's only the fifth um, that is of the style that it is. So only from NAP3 to NAP7 were they as they are, and they're not audits. So they're, they're service evaluations uh, which seek to look at major complications of anaesthesia and preoperative care. So that includes um, intensive care as well. And um, 
in series they have looked at. So they, they, what they look at is um, areas of practice which are um, important to patients, important to uh, clinicians, um, very infrequent, which means they can't be studied by other mechanisms. And usually um, they lead, and they're, they're rare, but they, they're rare, so they can't be studied by other mechanisms, but they're important um, and, you know, of clinical consequence. So um, we've looked at major complications of spinals and epidurals, NAP3. We looked at major complications of airway management, the sort of respiratory management that these tests do, including in intensive care. NAP4, NAP5, we looked at uh, unintended awareness during anaesthesia. NAP6 was life-threatening anaphylaxis. And NAP7, we come through to cardiac arrest. Okay, thank you. So, Andrew, so NAP7... Okay, sorry, Tony, I should probably, should probably add that they are... So they, they, they are... Essentially, we look at the complications of around 3 million anaesthetics. Um, but in contrast to um, other um, initiatives... Um, we also look at normal practice. And so we look at, we we collect what would be called denominator and numerator information. So that's the baseline information of what's happening on the ground and then the rates of complications. And we look at many hundreds of complications in great detail. But in contrast to the vast majority of um, such projects, because we look at numerator and denomination, because we look at the whole population, um, we can infer very strongly about things and create instances rather than just saying, well, this happens quite a lot. We can actually put real numbers on things. But actually, it's the cases, the numbers tell stories and the cases are really the, the highlights of the project. So I heard someone on Twitter call the NAPS a state of the nation. Do you think that's sort of what it is? It gives you this beautiful snapshot of really accurate data about what is actually happening on the floor in the NHS theatres. Would that be a, would that be okay? State a sort of like a state of the nature. I think particularly this phase of the project. So this is the baseline activity survey. The activity survey. So there's a well, the activity survey looks at um, several tens of thousands of cases and looks at what anaesthetists do, where they do it, how they do it. And in this case, we've looked at tracked how practices have changed. Um, and then we look at state of the nation in terms of complications and also another part of the project looks at um, attitudes and behaviours. Interesting. Uh, Andrew, can you let us know the paper today, uh, what, what has been covered um, and, you know, what was the purpose of NAP7 and what does the paper today tell us? Yeah, so, I mean, the purpose of NAP7 is really to investigate perioperative cardiac arrest um, in in the UK. But as Tim said, we needed to, um, in order to get the denominator data, we do this survey called the activity survey. And in for NAP7, we asked every NHS site across the whole of the UK to participate. And those that did, we had over 85% um, who responded, provided detailed patient level data about every case that every anaesthetist did in that hospital over four days. And they did that through a survey monkey link. So you do your case, whether it be grommets or a laparotomy. And then after the case, you then fill in the link, which was via a QR code, say the patient's age, BMI, anaesthetic techniques and complications that happened. And Whilst we focused a lot of the questions to look at comorbidities and complications, which will be in later parts of the project that we published, what we were able to do here, because we'd asked the same questions in previous surveys in NAP6 and NAP5, was to be able to look at how certain aspects of patient characteristics 
and what we do as anaesthetists had changed over time. And I think the key headlines are that we noticed that some striking things were happening to the patient population that we look after. First of all, they're getting older. So the median age went from just over 50 to just under 53 um, in the population that we look after as anaesthetists. We also noted that the patients were getting more complicated or comorbid um, as judged by their ASA score. So the ASA score for any non-anesthetists out there is a, a rating of how um, complex or comorbid a patient is, where one is essentially a fit and well person and five is somebody who's extremely unwell and might possibly die during the operation. And we found that the proportion of patients who were rated as ASA1, so a fit and healthy patient, was 38% back in NAP5, which was done in 2013, and it's now dropped to 24%, so down 14% over the last nine or 10 years, which is quite a striking change over time. And then the final thing that we noted um, about the patients was that they had increased um, their median body mass index. So body mass index, of course, a measure of, of, of weight to height. Um, and back in 2013, during NAP5, the median BMI was 24.9. So just sneaking in at the top of the normal range, whereas now it's over 26. So we've shifted the population. So there's more patients who are living with obesity coming for surgery in the UK. So we've got an increase in age, increase in complexity, and an increase in obesity in our surgical population. So when you just look at that from the outset, we're seeing our patients are getting older, larger, mm. and more comorbid. comorbid. So mm. I'm just wondering, Jazz, what do you think the implications are from a workforce point of view? If you're thinking about the average operating theatre, the NHS, every patient is a bit more challenging than they used to be. Yes, you're right, Tanya. And I'm sure, and I was just going to make a point. So all this data has been collected by every single anaesthetist in the UK. So thanks to the 11,000 plus UK anaesthetists who collected data on their, on their smartphones and gave it to us. And I think... A lot of us have thought work's getting harder, you know, the patient's getting bigger, older, more complex. And I think this data now supports that. And it clearly is part of, you know, the, the issues that are happening now with longer waiting lists and the backlog in surgery. And it's not going to be easy to get these patients done if they're becoming more complex. So I think... And we've, we've used age because that's what we had data from. But uh, we also have data now from NAP7 on frailty as well. And, yeah, there's, far, there's a large proportion of elderly patients living with frailty who are presenting for surgery. So complexity is getting greater. And I'm sure Tim's got more to say on that as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree with, with Jazz. I think the challenge is, um, the, the, the challenge, so when you look at the, the figures, so a, a couple of um, points in terms of increase in BMI, um, it doesn't seem uh, a very large increase. 
what has been noted is that not only was there a um quite a you know, an increase in the overall BMI, but at the upper ranges of the BMI, um the 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 proportion of patients who were what we call a BC um uh, scale three or or a BC scale two um had risen quite significantly. So um about eight percent um of of patients, there's an eight percent increase in the proportion of patients who had a BMI above 30. So um uh that's quite significant in terms of um the patients um uh, morbidity uh, sorry the patient's mobility and probably other diseases that they have associated with uh, increased weight um it uh, it creates technical challenges for um delivery of anesthesia and it creates technical challenges for delivery of surgery and then after surgery it creates challenges for the patient to recover and this all adds up to more complex slower uh, and um uh, surgery probably with greater complications and a, a longer period of time in in hospital so you've got slightly slower processes going through less cases per day on a national level and patients being likely as a as a as a group to stay in hospital longer and then if we look at age uh the impact might be even greater so here we've just got a lot about a two and a half year increase in age but if you there's a very nice paper in the bmj during the pandemic looking at the increase in <coughs> risk of of death as you get older, particularly focused on COVID. Um, but it, it highlights the sort of actuarial information, which is that for each year we become older, our mortality increases by 10%. So our mortality might be very low at age 30, but a year later it's 10% higher. So if you add, that means that in six years, your mortality risk doubles. Um, and in two and a half years, which is what the average age increase of patients the, the mortality risk of that population of patients has probably increased by about a quarter. So that's a non-trivial increase in the in the sort of risk profile of the group of patients we're looking at. Um, and and that in that that so they come to theatre two and a half years older, and that that increase in their underlying risk will interact with uh, those other factors, um, ASA, which others might speak about, but um, uh, BMI and the perioperative care and overall present a group of patients at increased risk. And so in a similar way that I described the comple greater complexity of, of travelling through the perioperative pathway, um, as BMI increases, that also applies to the increase in age and they interact with each other as well. Look, I found the, um, the information around the more complex patients fascinating because that's what we sort of feel here as well we don't have the data to back it up but we feel like there's no such thing as an easy list anymore there's this concept from administrators who are quite rightly trying to get through this massive backlog to put together a so-called easy list to really pump through uh, a number of patients so we can really get to as many as we can but we find on the ground there's just where are the easy lists? Our patients are just getting more complicated. So the days where you can have um, a large number of patients going through a theatre day and then quickly getting discharged home, it's just it's just becoming quite a difficult thing to, to find. Um, so Jazz, I was just interested in the ASA score. 
I know in our part of the world, there's sometimes some confusion or some discord about how a patient's ASA should be scored. So I was just wondering what your understanding was in terms of how the ASA score has changed over time and has it changed? Has this impacted the results in any way? Yeah, so first of all, ASA stands for the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and they produce this score where if you're ASA 1, you're, you're, you're the Olympic athlete, normal, healthy patient. If you're ASA 2, you're a, you have mild systemic disease, so you may have a bit of blood pressure or asthma. If you, if you smoke, you're ASA 2, yeah. Yeah, and then ASA three individuals who've had heart attacks or strokes. ASA four people who've had recent illnesses, and then ASA five is the patient who's at very high risk of dying. And what our data shows from our activity survey is is that the number of patients in each of those groups are moving from the ASA ones to twos to more threes and fours. So clearly, that's a measure of the uh, measure of the complexity and comorbidities that we're we're seeing in our day, you know, in in this activity survey. So um, so that clearly adds to the workload. So when you say, "Is there a simple list?" You want lots of ASA one patients, and there's more ASA twos and threes. And one of the things we've also picked up is that anaesthetists. For a lot of these higher risk patients, there, there is a tendency to underscore them. So things are probably often worse than people have actually scored. The other thing I was wondering about this NAP compared to others, this is the first one where the data was collected during a pandemic. And I'm just really, um, you know, from afar, we've been watching the UK pandemic um, and just take a moment to shout out for all of you for sharing lessons with us about pandemic management. But we did notice that you were collecting data during a pandemic. And I'm wondering how that was for your thousands of anaesthetists up and down the country, working with very sick patients. Um, a lot of people are tired, burnt out. I'm just wondering, Andrew, how did, how did people go with collecting that data did you find it was a struggle to get people to complete it or you know I'm amazed about how many data points you have yeah anyway given the pandemic was you know in the background well yeah I mean the pandemic has clearly impacted the project significantly and we kind of had a, a false start as it were going into 2020 because we wanted to launch the project initially um, and I think we had a meeting in February 2020 where we all sort of said our goodbyes and hope we see you on the other side kind of type thing. Um, but we we were aware that there were certain elements of the project that were challenging in previous iterations that would be even more challenging during COVID times. So, for example, the activity survey in NAP6 had been done on paper. So we'd sent all paper, you know, a bit like, you know, MCQ mark sheets out to all the different centres, people had filled those in and sent them back to the college centrally. And Laura Cortez, who's one of the um, wonderful members of the administration team at the college, had scanned all of those onto the optical system to register them and then get the data from them. And we just knew that things like that were not going to be doable during COVID. No one wants to post things, um, you know, that might be COVID positive to the college, for example. So 
we we made things as easy as we could. So we 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 designed an electronic survey and um, we tested it and tested it and we built in logic into it so that if patients were um, elderly, they got asked about frailty. But if they were not, then we didn't ask those questions. So we could streamline the amount of time that anaesthetists were taking to to participate as as best we could. And we found that you know, most hospitals were getting a good response rate well up into the 90s who participated. And I think part of it is also that culturally, the net projects are sort of embedded into UK practice. There's, you know, a, a, certainly a sort of team feeling that everyone feels that we collectively get something out of it if we give something to it. Um, so, you know, we're very appreciative of the local coordinators. There's one for each site who coordinate it and all of the anaesthetists on the ground you spend a lot of time and particularly if you've got a quick fire list you might have had to fill in six or seven of those in a day and that that is a burden but most people did it well that's just kudos kudos to all of you and can i just add i i, I think it's been an extraordinary effort so we we um as andrew says we we paused the project for a year um i kind of frightened uh, the panel on um, in, at our March meeting in 2020 um, and told them that something bad was coming and that they needed to prepare um, to the extent that Andrew on his way back up to Middlesbrough on the train ordered an extra. Um, and, um, but, you know, joking aside, it was a, it was a period of great turmoil and um, great anxiety. And, and I think it's a, it's a great tribute to, Anesthesia UK uh, that people turned up, they did their job, whether it was in anesthesia intensive care, and when the NAP came knocking, um, they they returned their forms. We we as well as doing this activity survey, we also ran some um, others a series of surveys looking at how NHS care was disrupted, and again. We got brilliant information from uh, hundreds of respondents as a consequence of them um, being willing to to respond. And I pay absolutely great tribute to all the anaesthetists and local coordinators um, who, who make this project work. It's an act of faith when we send out um, and ask for people to engage. And that act of faith is, is consistently repaid um, by anaesthetists across the NHS. And we can only be grateful for that because it does provide useful information and detailed information, which is uh, which works for different people on different levels. Um, but without uh, the engagement of individual anaesthetists, and as Andrew says, real engagement of the of the panel of uh, of the NAP NAP seven folk and also the, the college staff, none of this would work. And you know, it is a you know, it is a really good. Um, advertisement for the extra work that people do off their own back. I think that's really well said, uh, particularly uh, in our area of the world, research has taken a hit. Um, every research nurse uh, basically got tapped on the shoulder and put back into the clinical uh, workspace. The data on that's quite astounding to see how much research capacity was decreased. So the fact that you were able to actually uh, in the thick of it, sort of regroup and carry on is just extraordinary. And the information gathered by the UK anaesthetists is obviously really valuable for your people, but also around the world.
you know, every pretty much every talk we have about airway and allergy always has NAP data in it. Um, and so the anaesthetists of the world collectively thank you all UK anaesthetists for all that work. It's really valuable information and we genuinely use it really often. I mean, I couldn't tell you the number of times I've been in a morbidity and mortality meeting and someone has quoted NAP data around how we should manage things. So it's very highly prized, very valuable data. I don't think that can be overstated. Just wanted to uh, segue just a little bit on the finer detail about the anaesthetic techniques you found, because of course, Twitter full of regional anaesthetists. I have to shout out to all my Twitter people who love blocks. Um, they're a little bit horrified that despite the increasing complexity of the patients, that there was no uh, signal that regional anesthesia had increased. Uh, and people were wondering why that might be. Um, I just wondered if any of the three of you had a, a comment about that to address the regional anaesthetists. So can I go first? Is that all right? I think I think there was a small signal. So I think it, it you know in in the data it suggested they went from 12.9 nearly 14%. So it's up maybe one percent of the overall and actually as a proportional increase that's seven or eight percent so it has has increased um but i think this this study was done at the back end of 2021 and i think that although most things had got back to some degree of normality in the uk we were still in a delta wave there was still a degree of sickness in the workplace and at that point there was a lot of elective NHS work being done in the private sector, which we wouldn't necessarily have captured or we wouldn't have captured in this survey. So hips and knees, you know, a lot of that might have been done somewhere else. And so it's probably to their comfort for the regionalists masking some of the effort that they have been putting in over the years to promote regional anesthesia. Um, so I, I suspect that maybe if we were to repeat this now or as part of NAP8 in a few years time that we are going to see um, probably an increase in the use of regional anesthesia. Do you think however because I recall during COVID people were advocating for regional anesthesia as a safer way of giving anesthesia to avoid airway and aerosols you know back in the day when we were doing boxes and all the mm. rest of it there was a large push to say do a regional if you can. Do you think that translated to Maybe. real life it's hard to tell I, must admit, I was surprised not to see more regional cases because of this big push to avoid mm. agps and suddenly people realize they could do regional blocks for things they were doing on the spinal but the brits like their general anesthetics too <laughs> i think I the think australians it, like it too yeah so i think it's it's worth remembering that we were so we're about twenty months into the pandemic when this when the uh, when this part of NAP seven was done, and so certainly I think if we'd done it in May June July twenty twenty, then there would have been more regional. But I think there had been an increasing awareness that actually anaesthetizing your patient and putting and closing and closing the circuit by putting a a tube or a supraglottic down rather than leaving them breathing in theatre actually reduce aerosol. Um, so we'd moved away from the idea that all, even though the guidelines hadn't, 
I think in practice, a lot of anaesthetists have moved away from um, uh, the, the very dramatic move to regional anaesthesia that happened early on in the first year of the pandemic. And secondly, I think the first point Andy made, I think is Andrew made, is really important, is that although a small part of the of the total number, the relative increase is is, is significant. Um, so I think we have seen a rise, but it's still regional anaesthesia is a fraction of um, uh, of the purport, of a portion of all a relatively small fraction of of, of all cases. The other interesting thing that was very notable was the large rise in total intravenous anaesthesia cases compared to volatiles. That seemed quite dramatic to me. Is that that was an expected result? What's the trajectory on Tiva versus gas? Obviously, some people have been calling for banning volatiles altogether. So I'm just thinking Cliff Shelton's probably, you know, whooping with delight to see those numbers. Did you have any commentary around that? I think it's uh, for for the reasons most anaesthetists will will know about in that uh, there may be reasons of um, you know the issues of whether volatiles versus Tiva for cancer surgery, the issues with the environment, uh, and and with that we've seen a, con con a matched increase in the use of processed EEG monitoring for awareness and uh, optimizing the use of anesthetics. So people are using the right amount and not giving too many, too much. So I think, I must admit, I, I thought it would be higher than that, but it clearly isn't because everybody tells me that they use tea for now. So, so we don't know why people have changed. We've only observed that there is a change. I, I'm slightly disappointed that I, I think I asked the team to take out the drugs, specific drugs that, that were used um, because there was too much in the survey. And so we didn't capture, for instance, the use of nitrous oxide, which was used for, I think, about 27% of anaesthetics in in 2000, in um, NAP5. And you can imagine it would have dropped off quite a lot now. Even I'm a reluctant um, abstainer from nitrous oxide. And, um, but I think that, you know, the, the, I think there's a dramatic, you know, that is a dramatic increase in TIVA. And, and I know in Australasia, um, the rate of use of BIS was much higher um, than it has been traditionally in the UK on the back of um, studies like, I'm going to get this right, be aware rather than be unaware. And um, um, I think we're now catching up. So although we didn't look at, again, we didn't look at the rate of um, paralysis of patients, I think 62% of patients who had TIVA had a, um at abyss and we know that a little bit less than half of patients are paralyzed in general um so probably upwards of 90 percent of patients who were paralyzed with tiva or paralyzed and having tiva were also peg monitored um in, which is consistent with current guidelines so i like to think that uh, recommendations that came out in nap 5 are being adhered to and that we've changed practice but I think we've certainly observed a change in practice. What drives it um, is less clear, but certainly they're, they're dramatic changes. I think you could probably take a little credit for it just quietly. I know. <laughs> I mean, you know. Um, I just wanted to know what are the next steps for NAP7? When can we, uh, the readers, expect the next paper? 
what's happening now, Jez? You could okay. could you address it? What's the? We're only just starting. We've got even better stuff to come. So, <laughs> uh, so we've got a paper on uh, activity survey. So we've given this data, this activity data. We've also got a paper in the pipeline on complications amongst these twenty four thousand patients. So we can then match these comorbidities and SA scores with which of these patients go on to have complications or serious complications and which ones go on to have cardiac arrest. So that's one thread from the activity survey. The other one is the baseline survey we've done. So we've got data from about 11,000 UK anaesthetists on their experiences of cardiac arrest and the impact it's had on them and their careers. That's something. And then we've got about a thousand very detailed reports of every single perioperative cardiac arrest occurring over a one-year period. And we've analysed all those and we're just writing that up now. So all those papers will be coming out over the next six, seven months. And then there's going to be a launch for a report. And I'm going to get this right on November the 17th this year. Um, I, you know, there's a huge appetite for this. The last time you launched, you launched the allergy nap. And of course, there's a time zone problem. I was up watching it live, watching the tweets all night, watching each section come through the pediatric section, the obstetric section. It's just such interesting information. So, you know, there's a huge appetite for it. So we all can't wait. So that's November 17th in my diary already. So I think we'll close that there. I'd like to thank you all for your time today. That's been a really fascinating uh, chat for me to um, hear from you all. I'd also like to thank the NAP team for all your wonderful work. Uh, most of this work is done after hours. It's the team of volunteers uh, and the thousands of anaesthetists up and down the country for their work during the pandemic and uh, contributing to this information as well. We're all really grateful for that. So the paper is out now. It is very kindly been supplied free for all to download. Um, and I've got my copy right here that I've been discussing in the operating theatre. So it's late there now. I'll all, I'll all let you head to bed as I head off to my day on Friday. But thank you all very much for today. Thank you. Thanks, Tanya. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>